This is not your century. This is Not Your Century, where we celebrate the news and the news media of centuries gone by. I'm King Kaufman. Today's episode is part two of San Francisco history trivia from Not Your Century Live. I was planning to do three episodes from that live recording, but the trivia part got really long, so I decided to make it four. So here's part two of San Francisco history trivia. I need another volunteer. Now that you've been, you've been drinking, look at all these volunteers. Who has the microphone? Okay. Thank you for volunteering. What is your name? John. John. The appropriately named John. You could have been an answer in the first question. John W. Geary was our first mayor, by the way, in San Francisco. Um, I think he lived here for three years, and one of our biggest streets is named after him. Anyway, John, are you a Bay Area native? Uh, I've lived here 40 years, but I'm from Southern California. I hate to admit it. Yeah. It's all right. It's all right. Out in the desert. 40 years gives you some real credibility. Does anybody remember the the Casa Loma Hotel on Fillmore and Fell? It was a nightclub. I think it was a hotel, too, but it was a nightclub. And they used to have an ad in the the Bay Guardian and all the hipster alternative papers. It was a very hipster nightclub bar. It was a bar. And their slogan was something like, the hippest bar in town since before you moved here. (laughs) So, okay. I feel, like you're, I feel like you probably know the answer to this question just from having lived yeah. here for 40 years. And also, I don't remember what the question is. So here it goes. <laughs> That's good. It is. I probably won't either. Oh, it's a good one. Who said, if the devil in hell has an organ on earth, it is the San Francisco Chronicle? <laughs> Was it A, Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan and a happy subscriber of the Chronicle? It was, it was praise. Was it B, Joe Montana, after Sporting Green columnist Glenn Dickey criticized him for having a baby during the football season rather than planning better and having it in the offseason? Was it C, Isaac Smith Callick, mayor of San Francisco? Or was it D, Frank Jordan, former mayor of San Francisco, <laughs> after a certain photograph appeared on the front page of the Chronicle every day for 10 days leading up to Election Day in 1995? John. I'm just going to guess about Isaac Smith Callick. The one answer, there's no joke attached to it. Yes, that is correct, Isaac Smith Callick. I'm going to give you uh, one of my favorite prizes here. This is Chronicle Swag. It's a book about the summer of love. It's like a lot of photographs. I lo- if you listen to the podcast regularly, you know that I love the summer of love, love doing stories from the summer of love. Rudolf Nureyev being busted at a Hot party in the hate in 1967 with Dame, uh, what's her name? I forget the ballet dancer. What? Margot Fontaine, Dame Margot Fontaine. They were like hiding out on the roof of a hate apartment house while the cops were looking through. It was awesome. Uh, anyway, Isaac Smith Callock. Um, first of all, I want to show you the, the Glenn Dickey thing was real. He really did criticize Joe Montana for having a baby during the football season, saying that was poor planning. It says, thinking ahead is not something Montana does well, as we learned last season when he was distracted by the birth of his first child. Uh, (laughs) A little planning could have delayed that birth until the offseason when it wouldn't have affected Montana's concentration. So uh, that, that was Glenn Dickey. This is Isaac Smith Callick. He was a pretty interesting character. He was actually a candidate for mayor of San Francisco when he said this. This is a complicated story, and I'll try to tell it 
uh, quickly and uncomplicatedly. He was from Boston. He was a Baptist preacher. Big guy. You can't see from this black and white picture, but he had red hair, full beard, big voice, booming, charismatic speaker. He took over a struggling church in Boston, built it up to the largest congregation of, for a Baptist church in the United States. And then he had a little uh, adultery issue. Got, it, adultery was a crime in Boston at the time. He got charged with adultery, uh, was acquitted. That's going to be a recurring theme in this story. He was acquitted of adultery, but he left town. Goes to Kansas, helps found the University of Kansas, campaigns for Abraham Lincoln twice, makes his way to San Francisco, and starts preaching at a church. I think he built the church, the Metropolitan Baptist Temple on Fifth and Mission, Caddy Corner from where the Chronicle is now. The Chronicle was not there then. So if you picture the Pickwick Hotel, where that is, that's where it was. So he builds this big following. The big political power in San Francisco, this is in the late 1870s, 1877, 78, 79, was the Working Men's Party of California. This is Dennis Kearney. He was a demagogue who led this party. They were working men. Uh, they were laborers. They did not like big business. They did not like taxes. They did not like, what they really didn't like was Chinese immigration, Chinese immigrants. So it's hard to imagine a party like this coming into power in the United States, but back in the 1870s, this kind of thing happened. <laughs> so this guy, Dennis Kearney, and before you get the, uh, before you get the uh, petition drive started to change the name of Kearney Street, it's not named after him. That was a different Kearney. Uh, Dennis Kearney ended every speech with, the Chinese must go. And um, these people sweep into power in California in, I think, 1878. They get a new constitution written that has some anti-railroad stuff and a lot of anti-Chinese immigration and Chinese people stuff. And um, Isaac Smith Kallick was against them at first. He thought they were a street mob. He thought they were violent. He thought Chinese people had rights and needed to be protected from them. But he also wanted political power. And so in a very famous speech on the 4th of July, he completely reversed himself. And he finished his speech by saying, labor must be respected and the Chinese must go. And everybody knew what that meant. And before long, he was the people's, uh, the Working Men's Party of California's candidate for mayor. Well, this guy is Charles D. Young. This is the only photograph that I've ever seen of Charles DeYoung. He was the founder and the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle. So we have a direct line. First and last, we have the current editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle sitting in the back of the room, plotting my exit from the San Francisco Chronicle <laughs> if, I don't, if I mess this story up. Uh, so he thought, he supported the Working Men's Party of California, and he thought that he and the Chronicle, the only paper in town, this is the 1870s, there's a ton of newspapers in town, they were the only ones that supported this party. And he thought he got them their political power, and that Dennis Kearney was stealing his credit. So when Isaac Smith Kallick announces his candidacy for mayor, DeYoung sends a, an employee over to talk to him. And he says, uh, my employer says that the, his newspaper will support your candidacy for mayor if you denounce Dennis Kearney. And Isaac Smith Kallick's answer was, give my compliments to your employer and tell him he may go to hell. That's how they talked back then. I was like, pretty, pretty cool. So uh, DeYoung goes on 
the attack. He uses the pages of the Chronicle to attack Isaac Smith Colic, and I mean really attack. The Chronicle in those days was four pages. You've probably seen old newspapers from the 1870s, just solid wall of print, four pages. The first two columns of page three, every day for a week, was just this savage attack on Isaac Smith Colic. They did not have libel laws back then. So there was no particular need to tell the truth. And um, here's, a, here's an example from one of the days of that week. This is just the headline. It's like 13 separate headlines on top of the story. And they say things like the, uh, I have to put my glasses on to read them. The record of a misspent life, infamous career of the WPC candidate for mayor, driven forth from Boston like an unclean leper, mistrial for the crime of adultery, the evidence that fully established his guilt, uh, his escapade with one of the Tremont Temple choristers, whoever they were. Anyway, it goes on and on like that. And then there's like 5,000 words talking about his various crimes. And this is every day for a week. So on, uh, on Friday night of that week, Isaac Smith Kallick is preaching at the Metropolitan Temple on 5th and Mission, and he goes on the counterattack, and he says the famous line we started with, if the devil on earth has a, uh, an organ, it is the San Francisco Chronicle. He says all kinds of stuff about Charles Young and his brother Michael DeYoung, who was uh, his partner, and uh, revived an old rumor about them that their mother was a brothel uh, madam in St. Louis, and that's why they came out to San Francisco. It was not true, as was most of the stuff that uh, DeYoung had written about Calic. By the last day, I don't know if you can see this. This is blown up from uh, an article. This is not on page three. There's the usual attack on page three. This is on page two. And there's some type at the top of this. This is just one of the columns. And it's a story about the governor's election. And below, there's a story about some kind of mining, drilling thing. And in between, there's just one sentence of italics. And it says, what shall be thought of a pretended clergyman who would deliberately swindle a friendless widow out of all the money she had in the world? Calic was guilty of this meanness. And these were just scattered through the paper. They weren't part of any story. They were just like little, like the cartoons in The New Yorker. <laughs> it's just like little slanders. So Saturday morning, Isaac Smith Callick rents a taxi. It's a closed coupe. It's called a coupe. It's a closed carriage, horse carriage. It's 1879. So you can't see inside of it. You ride inside. And he hires a, a messenger boy. You could just hire these people off the street to work. It's kind of like Task Rabbit for 1879. They called it, they called it poverty. Um, hires the boy. They go down to Fifth and Mission. They wait till the church gets out. And DeYoung is inside the coop, and he says to the boy, he has the boy find Calic and tell him, there's a lady who wants to see you inside the coop. So Calic goes over, you know, fixes up his mustache and beard and strains up, looks inside the carriage, says, hello. And DeYoung shoots him point blank in the chest. And so he falls and shoots him again, the back of the leg. This is in the middle of a big crowd at Fifth and Mission. And the way things usually worked in 1879 when something like this happened was the crowd would grab the shooter and hang him on the spot. Like, that was just how they did stuff. So they knock over the taxi. The taxi driver later was uh, quoted as saying, like, I'm not going to let that guy hire me for a fare again. So <laughs> they knock over the taxi, and a cop happens to be walking by, and he saves DeYoung, takes him off to jail. 
and DeYoung from jail continues this campaign in the paper of slandering Kalik to, to poison the jury pool, I guess. He, he's eventually acquitted. He's acquitted for this shooting. Kalik survives, recovers from his wound, gets all kinds of sympathy from the voters, and uh, is elected mayor of San Francisco. So the thing about Kalik, as you can tell, he's kind of a combative guy, and that continued uh, in his uh, one term as mayor. He was actually impeached by the Board of Supervisors. I don't know why, but he, he was acquitted in the impeachment. He survived that, was not reelected, went off to Bellingham, Washington, and lived the rest of his life as a preacher there. Charles DeYoung lived the rest of his life as the editor of the San Francisco Chronicle, which was not long because Isaac Smith's Kalik's son, Milton, walked into the newsroom of the Chronicle and shot him dead. Milton was also acquitted. Everybody got acquitted <laughs> in 1879. According to the law, nothing happened in this whole story, going all the way back to the adultery in Boston. So that was Isaac Smith Kalik. And uh, that's... Uh, did I give away the prize? Did I... I talked for so long, I don't even remember who answered the question. Oh, it was John. And I gave you your prize. Okay, you got a prize. And so I need one more volunteer who has, uh, who has a, in, the, in the very back there, in the very back, hold your hand up again, person I chose. Hello. And what is your name? My name is Trisha. And uh, do we know each other? We've never met in our lives. We've never met in our never. lives. This is Trisha Tadani, City Hall reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. <laughs> You just really can't get a straight story out of Chronicle <laughs> reporters, it appears. Fake news. Fake okay. News. Um, I have one more question. Again, I do not remember what it is. Here's Gary again. Portals of the Past and 49 Views of San Francisco. Cool, great city of love. So here we go. I read this book. Clifford Prout Jr. was the head of an organization called SINA, S-I-N-A, that held demonstrations and protests about an issue that involved animals what was that issue? Was it A, people not spaying or neutering their pets? Seems like a pretty good issue to get upset about. Was it B, closing the Bay Area's last surviving dog racing track? This was back in the day. No more dog racing around here, so I guess that worked. Was it C, ending animal testing by cosmetics companies? We've certainly seen a lot of protests about that. Or was it D, putting clothes on the naked animals at the San Francisco Zoo? <laughs> I really Trisha. want it to be D. You really want it to be D? But I think it's C. You think it's what? I think it's C. You think it's C, ending animal testing by cosmetics companies? That is incorrect. You still win a prize. That's great. I only did this for the shirt. Uh, you want the shirt? Really? I do want the shirt. Okay, you can have the shirt. <laughs> Unless I can get Trisha it Trisha gets otherwise. the shirt. Trisha, by answering that question incorrectly, I think shows that she really doesn't know me. I'm throwing them all to you. Here we go. Don't everybody jump for these because we don't have insurance. Oh, okay. Give some of those back. Actually, give them to other people. Um, okay, who wants to steal this? We got a lot of hands. Where's the microphone? Um, how about let's go somewhere over here? Let's in the blue with his hand ever so high. Now his thumb is high, and he's smiling. Both thumbs are high, and there he is. And sir, what is your name? Paul. Paul. Are you a Bay Area native, Paul? From London. London. There's no bay. There's a river, I know. Okay. Are you visiting? Are you a tourist? I've been here a long time, okay. but my accent's not very local. Okay. 
So, Clifford Prout Jr. was protesting what that involved animals? Was it people not spaying and neutering their pets? Was it closing the Bay Area's last surviving dog racing track? Or was it putting clothing on the naked animals at the San Francisco Zoo? I think it's the spaying and neutering thing. The spaying and neutering of their pets. That is incorrect. <laughs> you have not learned very much in your years in San Francisco. So I'm going to give you this book called San Francisco Secrets and a DVD of the movie Milk. I hope you have a DVD player. For those of you who I um, burden with CDs and DVDs, remember your game console will probably play them. All right, this is, this is like the Monty Hall question. It's getting easier and easier. See, like, people in the 1990s would have got the Monty Hall question joke. Uh, we have two possible answers, and I need another volunteer um, right here, in the, almost in the front. Wait, wait for the microphone. We, we, we need the microphone. It's, it's a podcast. This is just nonsense here. This is really a podcast. Well, I want What is your name? Isabel. Isabel. And are you a Barry native? I've lived here 75% of my life, so. Fair enough. And which 75%? Started in Texas and got out of there as soon as I was able to run away from home legally and came out here to school. All right. I did that exact same thing, only <laughs> from Los Angeles. They yeah. paid for it. Um, okay. Uh, do we know each other? No. We do not know each other. That actually is the truth, which nobody believes us. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. What do we have? What did he answer? I forgot what he answered. Paul, spaying and neutering, thank you. So we have, it's, e it's either closing the Bay Area's last surviving dog racing track or, or putting clothing on the naked animals at San Francisco Zoo. You got a 50-50 shot, Isabel. Oh, I like the one about putting clothes on the animals. He was protesting naked animals at the San Francisco Zoo. There he is. This, uh, he was in every paper in the country. This, this is the National Enquirer, but he was... He is here. He's got some pants. What, we're, what, what we are looking at, folks, uh, at home, this is a newspaper. It says, The War Against Naked Animals. He aims to put pants on dogs, slips on horses, and even bikinis on cows. He is G. Clifford Prout of Cinna, the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals, <laughs> who claimed to have 50,000 followers and a $400,000 endowment. And he said that animals should conduct themselves much like people, if decency is to triumph over immorality in this world. He visited San Francisco in 1962, and the Chronicle put him on the front page for four days in a row. There were f it was a four-day series. There was something going on at the time called the Newspaper Wars. Here's a jump page where we have a uh, drawing of, I guess, bloomers for dogs and cats. There's a pattern and a drawing of a dog wearing them. Uh, these were designed by Clifford Proud. Here he is with Lulu, the baby elephant at the Fleischacker Zoo. He was annoyed that he did not have bloomers big enough for Lulu, who weighed 375 pounds. And uh, so here's his membership card for Cinna in New York, uh, Clifford Proud. Um, he looks, for people at home, it's a little hard to describe. He's kind of a nebbishy guy with uh, glasses. He looks... He kind of looks like Buck Henry, if you picture the comedian Buck Henry. And uh, one thing that's interesting about that is that he is Buck Henry. And this whole thing was a hoax. It was a hoax that lasted for five years. He went on the 
the Today Show in 1959. He was in Life magazine. He was on Walter Cronkite's CBS Evening News. He was in probably every major newspaper over the years. Finally, the hoax came to an end in 1964 when he was being interviewed by Time magazine, and he just came clean. He just said, this is a hoax. And the reason he did that is because the guy who ran the hoax uh, asked him to. Because this wasn't his hoax. He was a confederate of this man, Alan Abel, the greatest prankster in the history of America. He had a million of them. And he had these very, very complex pranks that he used, as with Buck Henry, who was his buddy from college. He used these confederates. He, had, he spent all this money. He ran a candidate for president, a grandmother from the Bronx named Yetta Bronstein. And her slogan was, vote for Yetta, things will get better. Uh, this, this animal protest included protests at the White House to protest Jackie Kennedy's naked horse because, and they had picket signs that said, a nude horse is a rude horse. Please put a diaper on your horse. Um, he had all kinds of one. He wrote a book, Abel wrote a book about the animal one called The Great American Hoax, published it in 1966. And um, he just was, that was his gig. He was a, a prankster. And one of his best pranks was he faked his own death. And this is his obituary on the wall from the New York Times. Uh, they said he created the clothing, uh, the animal clothing hoax, and he died. He had a heart attack while skiing at Robert Redford's ski resort in Utah. Except the problem is, as you probably know, he didn't really. So there's the correction that ran the next day. Obituary disclosed as a hoax. He very quickly, he did not let this hoax go for five years because his bank froze his assets, froze his money. <laughs> so after one day, he said, okay, that's how, it's a hoax, folks. And um, he said, after he said that there was a story about him, and he said, you know, I really have two problems. One is I can't make any money because he, he never had any money. It cost a ton of money to do these pranks and uh, to get the word out to do press releases and everything, travel around. And he didn't accept donations. People would send him donations to the animal clothing thing because there were all these kind of, you know, blue noses who were like, yes, you should close the animals. And they'd send him money. And he always sent it back because he figured that would, uh, he was getting money illegally. There was not, it was not a real thing. He said, and who knows if you can trust him, he said he once got a $40,000 check. And this is the 19, early 1960s. He said, I fondled it for a little while, but then I gave it back. And um, he said, the other problem is uh, nobody, when I really die, nobody will really believe me that I actually died. And so I will just be forgotten. So last September, he died. And this is the New York Times headline. It says, Alan Abel, hoaxer extraordinaire is, parenthesis, on good authority, close parenthesis, dead at 94. And they really fact-checked this one. The New York Times was very embarrassed still about the 1980 obituary. Um, I had a couple of, of video clips that I'm, I'm not going to show you because you can't hear the, the sound. Well, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll just play them. You can sort of see them. This is, the first one is Phil Donahue. Uh, the Phil Donahue show had just gone national in 1985. And uh, Alan Abel didn't like this. It was tabloid TV. He thought this was just nonsensical. And he, so as a protest against it, he planted people in the audience of the Phil Donahue show. And if you remember Phil Donahue's 
uh, shtick was he'd have some issue and he would run around with a microphone and you know the audience members would ask questions. Well, on this uh, episode, at, every time he'd run up to someone with the microphone, they would faint. And so I don't, you won't be able to hear this very well, but you'll be able to see it. She says, uh, it, well, "Yes, ma'am." And uh, I. She uh, says, "I'm feeling yeah, faint." Well, I know. I felt that and way. And down, down she goes. And um, so he sends it to commercial. He's like, we'll be right back. And then several people have fainted away. And uh, right here he's saying, our audience should know. And just as he says that, you hear this. We've lost another one. (laughs) So he was furious. After the show, the report was that he was kicking, like he was destroying the dressing room. He was so mad. But the thing is, it got him all kinds of attention and his ratings spiked. So that year he sends a Christmas card to Alan Abel thanking him and saying, I hope you don't feel faint in the new year. This one, um, I'll just play it. You won't be able to hear it. But um, in the mid-1970s, panhandling was just a a problem in the New York streets. All of a sudden, I guess it had become a bigger problem. Hard to imagine this. Again, people begging on the streets. But this did happen in the 1970s in New York. And so this is a local TV news story in New York about a guy named Omar the Beggar, who is the guy with the mask on here because he doesn't want people to see his identity. Uh, He holds classes teaching people how to do panhandling. For $200, you'd take five lessons, and he would teach you the best story. And what he's saying here is, I, I, I teach people to secure short-term loans. They go out on the streets and they ask strangers for unsecured loans because they have an immediate emergency. And that emergency, I teach them. Because you can't tell the truth. I mean, you go up to somebody and say, look, fella, can I have $20? Because, you know, I've got to help pay the mortgage. And I need milk for the family. And I've got to get my clothes cleaned. They say, get out of here. You know, people say, get out of here. I got I mean, my own problems. But if, own you, problem. if you walk up to them and you say you've been mugged and your clothes are torn and you've got blood on your clothes, which is really ketchup, they're not going to taste that ketchup. They're going to say, they're going to give you money and say, get out of here, get out of my face. They don't want you to get the blood on you. And so he teaches this class. Well, Omar the Beggar, obviously, this was a a hoax. It got covered all in, this was a sign of the times, got covered in all the media. And and Alan Abel, I don't even know if this is Alan Abel. That's how good a hoaxer he was. You never even, I didn't even know what he looked like. So that is the uh, Alan Abel story. All right. That's my show. I want to thank Monica and Seamus and Judd and all the people from Betabrand, Chris, for hosting us. Go to their website, betabrand.com. Get some pants. I want to thank Owen Thomas for dressing up so nicely. I want to thank Gary Camilla. I want to thank some people from the Chronicles, Sarah Cooney, Tracy Kim, Libby Coleman, and Heather Knight, who told me to do this. Listen to all their podcasts. Thanks to everyone for coming out. This has been Not Your Century, a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief. Get great journalism today at sfchronicle.com. I'm King Kaufman. Talk to me on Twitter at King underscore Kaufman. We now return you to your center.